Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Barbara Waxman. I came across Barbara's work early on in my exploration of this fascinating topic of how to manage our ever longer lives. She's a gerontologist and coach and has combined these in a career focused on helping people become more effective professionally and truer to who they themselves are as individuals. At the start of her own empty nester years, Barbara realized just how much opportunity the years ahead still had to offer. Recognizing the similarity between this turbulent time and that of adolescence, she coined the term middlelessence and authored a book aptly called The Middlelessence Manifesto, Igniting the Passion of Midlife. Today, she's an advisory council member for the Stanford Center on Longevity and is on the faculty of the Modern Elder Academy. In our conversation, we talk about the three R's of the subject, reality, response, and roadmap. And Barbara introduces yet another wonderful reframing that instead of talking about retirement, we should move to preferment. We've been talking about this subject for quite some time. Yes, we have. And it's always more and more interesting for some reason, even though many people think it isn't. That's the secret sauce to keep it interesting. So you have been involved in issues of aging and longevity for decades for your career. So I'm going to try and simplify a lot of what you know and what I'd love to cover in three really simple R's, I call them, reading, writing, and arithmetic. But this time, what is the reality of middle essence? And doesn't it seem awfully turbulent to you? I'm struck by how emotional a time it is for many people. So the reality of middle essence, first, let me say what is middle essence. It reflects the reality. In, in 2015, I took a gap year with my husband because we decided it was wasted on younger kids. So when we were in our 50s and our kids were launched for the most part, are they ever really launched? I don't know. We decided to leave the country and get perspective. We were both still working part-time, but we were free enough. So we moved to Italy. We worked from there a bit, but mostly we, we sat with our lives. We sat at the feet of our own lives and we learned from them. And what I saw after having been in the world of adult development and aging, gerontology for years, is that the years we've added to our lives don't show up as more decrepit years at the end. People tend to think, oh, of course, the demographics change. We're older longer. But really, those years are experienced in the middle, in that, quote, middle age that people sort of don't know what to do with. And as a result, we now live long enough to have adolescence, this turbulent period, twice. And so I didn't invent the word middle essence, but I coined it to reflect that we now live long enough to experience and expect to have turbulence in our lives, emotional, physical changes for men and women, situational, empty nesthood, divorce, loss, caregiving. So middle essence is like a second adolescence, but this time we have an opportunity to bring wisdom to it. Yeah, the reality is I find that people it hits them so unexpectedly. I mean, I feel like there's a combination of emotions as people 
bump into this unexpected and now thankfully labeled time that is laden with sort of shame, embarrassment, self-questioning, doubt, loss of self-confidence. I mean, this maelstrom of emotions that I think shock people profoundly. I think that's because our media industry does a lot of great things in sharing news, sometimes even too quickly. But stuck with a term that was introduced in the 1960s, the midlife crisis. And what they saw was, wow, this is really sticky. People will use this term. So it became embedded. It was actually, quote, invented by a 47-year-old white man who was probably going through his own midlife crisis. And he thought that it was a crisis of all proportions to talk about in the middle of life. What people don't understand is it's not a crisis. What if each one of us lived anticipating, oh, when you get to midlife, you're going to need more tools. You're going to need time and the ability to reflect on who do you want to be when you grow up, right? Because we're not really grown up just because we're supposed to be grown-ups. So the crisis, I think, is one of the reasons people suffer. Is It's a label that we have got to let go of. And that is why if you name it, you can tame it. And I'm encouraging people to start becoming more healthy in their mindsets and use the term middle essence to reflect the turbulence that we should expect all along because of how long we live. Well, and that feeds into the name of this podcast, which is uh, Four Quarter Lives, because I think what's interesting is now instead of destigmatizing or relaxing the midlife crisis we just added new crises to it i mean now we there's there's the quarter life crisis and i just read somebody's book that talks about the later life crisis around the 75s moving into the fourth quarter so rather than what you're advising and i totally agree is beginning to understand and study that These are major life transitions that are fairly predictable as we go through adulthood. We're still in sort of an old frame of, yeah, very much introduced and characterized by the midlife crisis. So what's the response? How should we respond? How do people respond? What have you found in your toolbox that you offer people? So I work as a coach for what I call adults midlife and better. Because the truth is, when people are surveyed, they don't want to go back. Yes, we're all sad that we don't have the tight skin and the muscle strength and the vital capacity. But what we get in return is a greater sense of fulfillment and happiness because we've got better perspective. Laura Carstensen from Stanford talks about FTP, future time perspective, that like anything else, the less you have of something, the more valuable it is. So the less time we sense we have until our eventual demise, which is where we're all headed, is, oh, so each second is actually sweeter. And with age, we understand that. So some of the tools have to do with working with people to help them free up their mind space to recognize the gifts that do exist. Part of it has to do with trying to enable people to take advantage of the freedom, the freedom that is associated with age, like once the roles of 
having to work to support an entire family shift towards having to work to support myself or a couple because that child rearing stage is mostly done. I can take off and do things. I have a colleague who was just remarried about a year ago. Her youngest child is going off to college and she and her husband have sold all of their possessions and they are taking off to travel, not retire, but to work from anywhere around the world. They said the biggest challenge will be making the time change work, but they want to learn, experience, grow, and have adventure. Who would have thought that people around 60 years old would be speaking like that, right? That's the reality. So we need to continue to share the stories of people who are inspirational and make sure there are opportunities to do things like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was absolutely committed to this idea of more role models, more different ways of living this new freedom that you're describing and the the lightness that people can access at this age, potentially. Do you think, so I know we've discussed this a lot, so let me put it in here. What are the differences between men and women at this age and stage? Are they coming into these years in really different ways with really different expectations? This is also so highly misunderstood. I'm so glad that you asked. We do chat about this a lot. Men are acculturated, as are women, to be a certain way. Maybe it's changing with our generation of children who are now in their 20s. But men who are midlife and better grew up, don't cry. You're not a girl. You're going to grow up. You're going to be the role model, the, the one who's bringing home the bacon. And then as women, we grew up and we were told you can be sensitive. We are acculturated to be more social, which makes us, by the way, healthier for longer. And we can do it all. We can work. We can raise a family. So what happens in midlife is oftentimes men start to feel their power wane. Their role has been to work and provide and be with their family. They haven't been acculturated to develop their social networks as much as women. Women have been doing it all. I'm working. I'm also raising with my husband or partner, my family. But really, women hold a lot of that responsibility. So in midlife, Women are feeling more powerful, more free once kids are launched to actually say, I'm going to get back to my career and really pick it up in a way I wasn't able to for years. So as men, power feels to them like it is descending, women's power oftentimes is ascending. And there are conflicts in couples around that a lot. So it's actually quite an interesting divergence in how it's experienced that I don't think people fully appreciate or understand. Yeah, I think it's almost, I mean, potentially an unbelievably complementary in an unexpected way. If we understood it better, I agree with you that this just isn't seen. So what if women are the carers or the dominant carers in Q2 and then in Q3 their careers take off, which is something we're just beginning to kind of see emerge as a trend. Yes. And men do the inverse. Do you think that's where we're headed? Because it it sounds sort of scarily gendered, which is what we've been fighting against all these years, that we can have more similar paths, but is the path forward then to just accept our differences and work with them? I actually think there's a third way. I think that we are partnering more, that I think women, because we are so relational, 
and problem solvers are looking to partner with someone. So in some ways, yes, it causes conflict amongst some couples as women ascend and men don't want to and don't know what to do with that. On the other hand, I I think there are more and more conversations I'm working with clients around how do we come together? I've never had as many as a coach, coaching clients saying to me, would you work with my spouse? Do you think we could come together and talk with you? So I think there's such exciting possibility. And when we look at the next generation coming up, two of my kids are married. Their partnerships from the get-go are so much more equal in all ways. So that like anything else, we're going through a messy middle and we're going to come out better for it. What I'm hearing too is that part of this adult journey that we're on is to explore different dimensions of ourselves in later life than we did in the first half of adulthood which for some women means increased power and working on a broader global uh, stage, perhaps. And for men, it may be to be actually more caring, more involved in roles that were traditionally feminine. That sounds like a win-win to me. Is that what you're seeing? I see that occasionally. And I think it's an interesting question and something to watch for. I haven't seen men taking on the caring role or the carer role and sort of swapping in that way so much. I mean, I know it happens sometimes, but I don't think that's the norm. I think I'm seeing more of coming towards an understanding and a partnership through real honest communication and an exploration of what does it look like as we're all feeling more vulnerable in the world, no matter what our age or stage, because the world is a more and more, frankly, scary place these days. Let me bring this physical then, because we've been talking about hormones. I'm reading a book called Tea, all about testosterone and what it does. So we talk a tremendous amount right now. I find there's an explosion of sites about menopause and women and women at work and menopause and rights. What's going on with men? And is there a parallel journey that we're not talking about enough? It's a really great point as well, because not only aren't we prepared as kind of a society, but men aren't prepared because now menopause used to be taboo to discuss. Now, everywhere you go, people are talking about it in a very healthy way. But for men whose testosterone decreases, it's called andropause. And they have associated shifts that happen in their brains. So their thinking is different, less aggressive. Their bodies, they have more belly fat. They're like, where is this coming from? Women have complained about weight issues more than men for generations and for decades. But now for the first time, men are paying attention to this. There's more plastic surgery amongst men than ever because they're feeling less powerful. So I do think that it's really important that as we promote this idea of shifts in life through menopause for women, that we also support men in saying, this is your time to really think about how do you become whom you've wanted to be? And maybe this is more of an opening to do that. Absolutely. Which leads me to my final third, which is the roadmap. What do you think exists today for charting this new, longer life and what's missing? What, what do we still need to add? And who's responding? The first that I'll mention is how you and I originally came to know one another through the Modern Elder Academy, which was born from one man, Chip Conley's experience, when he went from being very powerful, owning a boutique hotel company, sold that, became an advisor when Air 
B&B, which was originally Air Bed and Breakfast, started. And he felt less powerful because at about 50 at that time, he didn't understand about apps and all that kind of thing. And he felt as much an intern as a mentor. And as he struggled with that, he realized what a place of wisdom he came to. He needed to become a lifelong learner in ways he hadn't imagined, while also holding on to the power and wisdom to be able to influence so the company could be successful. He took all that and he started what he considers to be, and I think it is, the first midlife wisdom school. So there are opportunities there that are so tremendous. I have seen through the multiple courses that I've taught there how changed men and women are as a result of that. So one are those. I've been approached by associations. There's a financial services membership association who wants to develop a purpose school to help people focus. This is more focused on philanthropy, but how do we enable people to feel more purposeful in what they consider to be the second half of life? I've been approached by some small community groups of men and of women, interestingly, both separate, not mixed groups. One is called the Nestor's Salon Group, and it's a group of women who has been getting together for probably a decade, and they bring in facilitators to help them continue to learn, grow, and understand themselves as they're aging. So I think there's such a tremendous opportunity for people to say, oh, it's okay to explore this. It's not a crisis. And to shift towards what companies are doing. I'm in discussion with two companies right now who are looking at how do we both encourage people for whom it's getting close to time to leave, but we don't want them to completely leave. And how do we build our pipeline? Because let's face it, mentorships have not been something that individuals mostly have invested in or companies have. They invested it so much on on just like, let's mentor women, right? Or particular minorities, but they didn't see it as actually a huge succession planning requirement for everyone. Exactly. And so there's a tension there. So where do we go? I think part of it is letting go of this word retirement. I think language is so important, which is why midlife crisis stuck, middle lessons hopefully is ascending. And rather than retirement, actually out of your neighborhood these days in Boston, I have a friend who was talking to me about preferment. How do we shift whether we need to make money or not at a certain phase to say, what do I prefer to do with my time? And I think that's kind of another healthy outgrowth of this acceptance that our longer lives require us to be creative and engaged and experiment. So you're really sensing that's that's wonderful and very inspiring that from all corners, and obviously I'm talking to you from Harvard's ALI and you're involved in the Stanford Longevity Center and the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute. So universities are getting into the action as well as private training organizations of all kind. I think Chip was a pioneer in the Modern Elder Academy. I, I imagine there will be many more coming on tap. And you're even suggesting, which is something I have seen less, is companies starting to come on board as well to redesign career management for longer lives. I've been pretty shocked, actually, by how few companies are really 
designing for longer Q3s and integrating it into their career management. I'm getting some noise. It will be interesting. I'm in conversations. Nothing has come of it to see how much are companies willing to invest in this. What have you seen? I'm curious. Listen, I have seen companies start to work on midlife transitions where they get people preparing and thinking for the next phase of their careers much earlier. So rather than working on retirement and then helping people with outplacement when they're 60 or so to get them out of the organization, what you're describing is to much more start, you know, only the most advanced organizations start working at, in their 40s and 50s to actually get them upskilling, reskilling, and eventually flexibilizing a bit around work schedules. I always say, you know, Peter Drucker announced 20 years ago that there would be two workforces, the over 50s and the under 50s. And we're, we're getting there. I mean, that reality is growing. But the number of companies I'm seeing embracing that scale of demographic shift, I I haven't seen almost anybody. What's interesting, you're reminding me as you say this, people are leaving companies. Meanwhile, there's a brain drain and we need people to stay, but they're leaving because they don't feel like there's a place, they're burnt out, or they just feel like they're not challenged. They're not doing what they want to be doing anymore. And I just came back from vacation and met the most interesting people along the way. And I cannot tell you how many of them were like George, who was a personal trainer in one place. He was an engineer by training. And then he started another company in a different industry, financial services. And then he left that and he, de- he had a, an injury and developed a passion around physical rehab and therapy. He was associated with this place where I was on vacation. And they said to him, you seem like you're floundering. I think they were personal friends, but you have all these skills we could probably use. And he said, this is my retirement. And I said, no, if this is your preferment, I met someone else who was a ranger, a park ranger when we were out on a hike, similarly had been in another career. And then she said, this is my retirement again. No, this is your preferment. So I think this trend we're going to see is until companies are going to build the dual pipeline, right? It goes both ways. People will continue to leave and to do interesting things that give them enough income, or sometimes people don't need an income, but we all want to feel valued and engaged regardless. And so I think we're seeing people in all kinds of sectors doing that. Totally. I really love this other vocabulary you're proposing of preferment. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful pairing with middle lessons. So to do what you actually prefer doing. Yeah, a reminder that new companies in the U.S. are increasingly being created by people in the third quarter over the age of 50. And I don't think that's all that well known either, right? So this idea of choosing what you do. I'm just to conclude maybe and wrap up, what is it that you think is the internal liberation imagination required to get more people thinking more creatively about the idea of what would they prefer to do 
rather than just keep going in the rat race or whatever obligations there. I believe, I think you started our conversation talking about simplifying. I also am big on let's not create complexity. Let's simplify and work with what we've got. And what people have over the course, and it increases over our lifespan, is the experience and the wisdom to understand, oh, I failed before and I survived. We need to remind one another, you could do that again. So enabling and allowing people to take risks when they think, no, this is stasis. Midlife, my book is written. We need to encourage one another that, no, your next chapter, using your terminology, is in the next quarter. Let's write that. Let's create that. So I think it's happening. And I think we need to share the stories. I so appreciate what you're doing. And you're such a great role model. You have a successful company and business. And you have taken this time to go back to school and immerse yourself in new thinking and new people and new ways of being to come out of it at your age and stage, making the world a better place and yourself better for it. So I think we need to keep working on those opportunities. And maybe this is a plug for coaching, but I think because it's not yet embedded in our culture, there are resources, there are people trained to be strategic thought partners and supports use it. We are used to hiring coaches and trainers for our families and kids. What about doing that for ourselves? I think it's really important. And I know from over 20 years of experience that it doesn't take much to ignite someone's clarity. And then we've got the wisdom to take it on the road and know what to do with it. Couldn't agree more. The, the, the kick for coaching is absolutely. I, I never liked Sheryl <laughs> Sandberg's, the, the title of her book, Lean In, about getting young women to lean in. But I really think the title is apt for this age and stage. You really yes. want to lean into this third quarter middle essence to prepare for it in good time and get the coaches and the resources and the restart of education just to give you that energy community and upskilling that you may need to step forth a whole new chapter. So, Barbara, thank you for doing that, for being there. Where do people find you and your your book, Middle Essence, and your coaching if they want to call you up and get a little bit of this kind of juice for their own journey? Thank you for asking. The Middle Essence is a manifesto called the Middle Essence Manifesto, and you could find it on Amazon. It's 50 pages, easy to digest, and sort of gives people the background to be able to name the stage nothing more. In order to find me, barbarawaxman.com. My name, super, super easy. There are lots of free tools that people can download on the website. My goal is to be that spark, make the world a better place. So when people reach out for coaching, we can discuss that. But really, it's also a whole host of resources there for people. Fantastic. Barbara, you've certainly been a spark to me. Last thought to leave with our listeners. I think that I want all of the listeners to know that you are needed. We need everyone to lean in, your words for this stage, because the world needs our wisdom. From children to families to workplaces, we are needed more than ever. And don't forget that. Amen. Thank you, Barbara. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you. 
For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>